Before we start this week's episode, I have some exciting news to share. The Rob Burgess Show is now listed on iTunes. You can find it at tinyurl.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show. And once you're signed into iTunes, hit subscribe. Click the tab on the iTunes page near the top that says Ratings and Reviews. From there, please leave a star rating, hopefully five stars, and click Write a Review to leave a review. Thanks for the support. You can find more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. The official website for The Rob Burgess Show is www.therobburgessshow.com. Follow on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show. Like the page on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Follow on SoundCloud at The Dash Rob Dash Burgess Dash Show. The email for the show is The Rob Burgess Show at gmail.com. On this, our fourth episode, our guest is Michael A. Wood Jr. Michael is a Baltimore-based police reform activist who, after spending a career in the United States Marine Corps and Baltimore Police Department, has torn down the blue wall of silence. He has become a vocal advocate of a new era of civilian-led policing. While completing his doctorate studies, Michael works as much as possible with grassroots activism on the streets of Baltimore, where his most valuable lessons were learned, and makes media and speaking appearances to further the discussion on police reform and the needs of the people. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter at Michael A. Wood Jr. You can find his website at michaelawoodjr.net. He is also a speaker for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Their website can be found at leap.cc. The first time I became aware of Michael was June 26, 2015. That day, he took to his Twitter account and shared the following. So here we go. I'm going to start tweeting the things I've seen and participated in, policing that is corrupt, intentional, or not. A detective slapping a completely innocent female in the face for bumping into him coming out of a corner chicken store. Punting a handcuffed face-down suspect in the face after a foot chase. My handcuffs, not my boot or suspect. Television cameras turning as soon as a suspect is close to caught. Defecating inside a suspect's homes during raids on their beds and clothes. Swearing in court and probable cause documents that suspect dropped a controlled dangerous substance during unbroken visual pursuit when neither was true. Jacking up and illegally searching thousands of people with no legal justification. Having other people write probable cause statements who were never there because they could twist it into legality. Summoning to officers who weren't there so they could collect the overtime. Targeting 16 to 24-year-old black males essentially because we arrest them more, perpetuating the circle of arresting them more. If internal investigations were transparent, you would be able to see it all. The records are there. 
What's really hard to convey is that some things are so commonplace they didn't register until I was on the other side. I'm one person relying on a flawed memory system. This is an indictment on the culture of the profession, not a witch hunt. Sorry. A quick programming note. The first two minutes or so of this episode were severely damaged by a technical glitch on my end, rendering them of too poor quality to be broadcast. However, here is a transcript of what Michael said to kick off the episode. I am a Marine Corps veteran. I served 11 years in the police department in Baltimore until I was forced to retire from a line of duty injury. And with the movement growing post-Michael Brown, the Black Lives Matter movement, I kept hearing a lot of defense of the things that were completely indefensible for police to do. And I decided I was going to talk about these things, whether we wanted to talk about them or not, or whether it was going to get me in trouble or not, or whether it was breaking the code. This has to be addressed, and that got a lot of sensationalism. We'll pick it up right there, and now, on to the show. At this point, uh, almost a year later, what I'm really happy about is that I've been able to turn that into a discussion about police reform and start talking about solutions instead of the sensationalism of what occurs. Right, right. So um, for people who don't know what Baltimore is like, because, I mean, I know I only know it from, you know, mostly David Simon things. Um, so um, like The Wire, but what could kind of describe for people the, the landscape of, of Baltimore, just kind of in general for people that don't know. So there's Baltimore is one of those top ten hypersegregated cities. So you have two distinct Baltimores. There's essentially the black and really poor Baltimore that's east and west, and those were actually intentionally set up by laws in the past to and and um, lease agreements and things like that to uh, have black neighborhoods segregated. And so those neighborhoods now are like the desert of resources. There's there's no food. There's no uh, rec centers. There's nothing for kids to do. There's no investment in the community. So those places are left to rot and are heavily policed, uh, one of the heaviest policed areas in the country. And then the other Baltimore is like the white Baltimore that has a lot of money, and it's very nice. Uh, I mean, there's there's low crime in a lot of it. It's on the inner harbor. You have high rises and big houses with yards. And those two Baltimores are distinctly different places. So it always matters which Baltimore you're in to even start describing which Baltimore we're talking about. Yeah, I guess one word really doesn't describe it all. And, and you're right with the redlining and things in the past that, that definitely, you know, and that's something I didn't know about until fairly recently. I, I of course, read that ta Coates uh, piece, The Case for Reparations, and that really opened my eyes to just how pre-planned a lot of this was. And it's like there is a, you know, quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks for a reason. And it wasn't an accident, you know. So, right, it was a line that somebody was drawing those tracks. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like literal tracks. So. Yeah. Um, so, I'm in the intro to this podcast. I'll, I'll go ahead and have read the the tweets from June 25th of last year, so we don't have to go through those because I'm sure you've had them repeated back to you a thousand times. But um, I, uh, I I saw those that that day, and, and you know, I, I immediately just knew I, I wanted to talk to you and just had so many questions. And then, of course, I heard you on the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, and that 
that was amazing too. And if people haven't heard that, I, I highly suggest go back and listen to that. Um, I, mostly it was kind of stark, shocking to me because I've never heard anyone talk like that before, and especially somebody who uh, was on the other side of it and now was kind of telling their experiences. Um, it just seems so brave to me to, to say that. So I guess my first question is, were you concerned for your safety at all, like either then or now, like as far as speaking out? You know, I, I get that question a lot, and um, I never really worried about it, and, and I think that, that maybe because you have to think about what the reverse of that means. So what that means is that the person who is trying to scream out that the system is systemically corrupt and there there's no way to be a good cop in this system would then potentially be assaulted or executed by police officers who were trying to say they're not bad guys. Like, I don't know. I just don't think it's a, it's, it's really going to happen. Right, right. Fair enough, yeah. Um, now, what has been the response from the Baltimore Police Department? And I think I saw some thing on your uh, website where the didn't internal, internal affairs get a, get a hold of you after hearing some of these things you were saying and say, oh, please come in for a, a meeting or whatever. What has their response been to you going public with these things you've seen? Well, it's been pretty much... Um, if you ignore it and don't talk about it, nobody will pay attention. That's kind of sure. in the response. At first they said, um, you know, report these things if if you want to. So they kept hiding behind that. Mm-hmm. So eventually I ended up writing a, a letter to the commissioner and posting it on my website. So it was an open letter for everyone to see that they were refusing to address what I was talking about by hiding behind that corner that I didn't want to go into, that corner of naming other officers. Hmm. So since they were doing that, I said, fine, I'll give you what you want. I will give you the names of uh, the first two officers that I mentioned, and uh, the cost for that will be a one-hour videotape discussion between me and the commissioner talking about reform efforts and policing. They didn't agree to that. So that seems like an awfully simple request uh-huh. if you actually are in pursuit of justice and want those cops' names. Right, right. Um, and you seem like you're all about transparency and openness, and that doesn't seem like the way that they would they would be responding to that. So. Right. So um, they're just going to continue to play the game that I guess I don't exist is the best angle for them. I got you. Okay. Um, so what was it about that day, that, that June 25th? I, I can't remember if there was a specific incident in the news that that went along with that was what was was there something that was in response to that caused you to speak out that particular day? Yeah, it was RFOP, um, the police union, releasing statements um, like just acting like the officers did nothing wrong in the death of Freddie Gray, mm-hmm. and so I mean on its face. Your job is to respect people's rights, and your number one mission is to protect life. Mm -hmm. So we have a situation where individual rights being respected are highly in question, and what's completely not in question is that there was no due respect given to protect his life. Mm -hmm. So these are fundamental violations of policing. There's This is indefensible. And 
they just all took the department and the union took a stance that they didn't do anything wrong and and you know so be it maybe Freddie Gray tried to kill himself and committed suicide in the back of the van and it was like that's that's it I mean you can't you can't be in a completely indefensible situation and still act like you are the good guys when you don't give it all a damn all about the death of another human being. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you brought up police unions because that is something I wanted to get to. Um, I, I keep hearing when there's like an incident like it with a public figure, let's say, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, maybe the NYPD turning their backs on Mayor de Blasio after the Eric Garner thing. Um, I'm thinking of the thing with Beyonce getting boycotted in Florida after her um, Super Bowl thing and that song, the video went with that and, you know, Quentin Tarantino receiving this failed threat, you know, pre the opening of his hateful eight movie um what is going on with the police union thing because that does seem to be where it's like a lot of the most uh you know lashing back at, at people for speaking out is coming from what what can you tell people about that who don't is i'm not really familiar with the whole thing yeah i mean it's hard to make sense of it's like it's like a trump rally i don't, I don't know how we're going to make sense of it but it, it's um it's a dark underbelly i think in our society having like its last screams um before it dies yeah <laughs> uh, so you know um it's like baby boomers uh-huh and, and you know and a little maybe a little bit younger is about what we're talking about sure. and it's they just don't see the world for what it is as a generalization mhm yeah you know they 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 think that um you know, colleges are liberal conspiracies, and it's you know, like an obvious correlation. Like we can't have the discussion that maybe it's because when educated people, when people get educated, they realize that liberal policies work. Mm-hmm. Like they can't make that agenda. <laughs> like, like they, you know, they they don't make these connections, and and it's like the last dying breeds of the people that can't Google what the truth is. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, so I went back and I looked at, you know, I was going to ask you when the first time you decided to speak out, because I, I didn't think this, it, the way you were talking, it kind of made me think that, you know, this wasn't maybe the first time you'd spoken out. Maybe just it was the first time people paid attention in a major way. Um, and I actually found something back on your, from your website I linked to that uh, was like something on, I think you had a LinkedIn something blog post from like 2012 that was also pretty, you know, you were, you were kind of telling what you saw on the job, and, and were you still on the job at that time? And when was the first time you spoke out about these things in, in a public way? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my criticism sometimes from other cops around the nation will be, why did you do something from the inside? And I did. Um, I started in around around 2009 and started actively fighting some of the injustices that I saw inside because there's, like, while cops as a group, operate in, like, this brotherhood of racist actions. They're not, like, necessarily racist themselves. There's still racism in the internal structure of the agency. So black cops are treated differently, whether it comes to punishments or it comes to promotions and things like that. So 
I started trying to fight and address those things inside and really fight to have the officers be better educated and, and have more professionalism. But that got me pretty blackballed. I, I mean, command hated that I, I did those things and wrote a big guide um, discussing uh, how to properly do things and the police with empathy and the respect people's rights. So I did all that, and uh, that was completely ineffective. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like, when I said those tweets, like, I just talked to a bunch of guys around here and some reporters and stuff. So that's who I thought I was talking to, you know, these these people from Baltimore that I'm used to just talking to on Twitter. I only had 400 followers. I didn't think there was anybody going to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I, I, you know, I had never heard of you before that day, and then I was like, who is this guy talking about? <laughs> so I was just pursuing my Ph.D., uh-huh. Because I thought the best way to change things was going to be to do some actual research and put it in the literature because the literature isn't there uh, in reference to policing because it, all, the ref, all the literature in reference to policing is backed by criminal justice studies, which all have this flawed principle starting off. And, and it's like it's more of an ideology than a science. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to figure I'd like contribute to like the formation of a police management science that was you know evidence based and then and actually trying to pursue justice. So I thought that was what I was doing, and then suddenly I got thrown into the activism just because I decided to open my mouth and right. tweet things. Does it just seem like that's the way it is? It's normal when when this is happening all around you, or yeah, I think like. I don't know. It's a real hard psychology, I guess, to try and break down what actually occurs. At its fundamental level, I, I think, like, the police as a whole think they're doing the right thing because the criminal justice culture and ideology and even society in general essentially tells them that that's the right thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's not we, – we sit here as a society, as a mass whole, you know, obviously we have protesting and all, but we all accept that they determine that there's no legal reason to pursue the investigation of Tamir Rice's murder as a murder. Like, they legally determine that, and society has accepted that. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's something in us that says – that police can be this way, and so they're just like doing what people tell them they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, and it just it just is such an unquestionable like part of society. You know, it's it's just you know whether they're right or not doesn't really seem to matter. It's just some people are just going to reflexively defend the actions of police just because they are police and not question is this the best thing the could police could be doing? You know, it's almost like or is it legal? Right, exactly. Like so, they always say that. Well, they didn't break the law. That doesn't make it right. If you to be a cop, you have to do things that are right. Mm-hmm. You know, that are morally defensible, not that are legally defensible. So, and I think that's happened because in America, our policing was based from the government from the very beginning, from like authority. So it's always been these authority figures telling you what policing will be. Yeah. And that's like fundamentally not American. We never stopped and says, said, what do the people want police to be? Because if we had to ever ask that question at any point in time, what I say wouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. And it's interesting that you say, like, what's what's legal as far as, because I did see a tweet you had from the other day that was, like, the stop resisting thing uh, is mm-hmm. all about just covering yourself for legal reasons. And, and that kind of reminded me of when I saw the Sandra Bland uh, tape, when you hear that cop being like, stop resisting, stop resisting. He's like, hold on, why are we in a position to have this woman stop resisting when she did nothing wrong? And, you know, she's just smoking a cigarette in her own car, and, and all of a sudden she's getting, I'll light you up and all, you know, all this stuff. It's just like, why is this escalating this thing? And you're just, whose benefit are you saying stop resisting for? Hers or ours, you know, later that we're watching this tape, you know? It's, it's what you think it is. You know, that's like kind of one of the big issues is that people are like, like, like they know it. Like they have to know it. I mean, when you hear the stop resisting, stop resisting, and it's always like off the camera. Yeah, exactly. And then you see, you see other cameras that will show a different angle or you can see the guy's clearly not resisting. Yeah. And it's like, well, it doesn't give you pause the next time you hear that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, now, you, you have also touched on this a little bit, but what has been the response from active duty police officers to what you've been saying? I can't. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are very unhappy, but I, I'm sure there's maybe some that maybe reach out in private or, or don't say it in a public way, but maybe agree with what you're saying and, and that you're saying it. What, what's been the response there? So probably the biggest surprise I got was that there's hundreds if not thousands of emails in there from cops and prospective cops around the country that understand and want to be different and want to, well, it's not that they, they want to be able to be different because the system actually prevents them from being able to be different. Mm-hmm. So, so they're out there, and people are always asking me, should I still go in law enforcement? So uh, people are thinking about this. From the... Um, I think a, a certain amount of them feel that that like I betrayed them in some reason, uh, which is ultimately ironic because I've never named a name. So when they insult me, like they're doing something I've never done to them, which is ironic in the least. But um, I, I think most people that take the time to hear me out understand this. Like this is an easy argument to make because it's backed by all the facts. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of having them hear me. And I think once they hear this argument and once they get ingrained in the community, because that's one thing that, that really made a big difference for me is as I started to integrate a little bit more into the community and you, you get that kinship. Mm-hmm. So uh, once you start doing that, like, it, it will all fall into place. You just have to get the guys to do it. Right, right. And one one things I like about when I read your website was you really focus on empathy, and that's that's been a big thing for me, and I feel like that creates a lot more better outcomes for people, and especially with policing, you look at, like, with, you mentioned Ferguson before, but, you know, Darren Wilson, you know, was not from Ferguson. He was from an outside city, and he commuted in every day, and he didn't live in the community. He didn't know these people outside of being a police officer. Did you feel that remove when you were a police officer from the community, like you're not part of this? You're just kind of swooping in to be the, you know, overseer or whatever. Well, I did, um, but I respected that. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, I was clearly an occupier. I understood that. And, and I, I tried to look at it like, hey, this is your neighborhood. You tell me what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I understand this isn't my place. You know, and it, and, and to an effect... It shouldn't matter because if you're serving that community, if that's your fundamental principle, it shouldn't matter where you are. Like, you should be able to pluck a cop from anywhere and put them in any neighborhood and everything will be fine because 
you're trying to serve the, the needs of that community um, separate from your personal wishes because you, you're a servant, not, not a, uh, an order giver to the community. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, those are just my philosophies. On no, no, I, I agree. People should try harder, and we should like you shouldn't take you living in the community for you to feel empathy with someone. I agree, but you know, it, it does seem like that. You know, if there are times that you know somebody sees you at say the grocery store, when cause, just because you live down the street and they live on the street, and you see each other in a context where it's not like you might arrest them, I almost feel like you know what I mean. That that might maybe engender. Yeah, a little bit yeah, more. I know. I rub a lot of feathers actually with this argument, uh-huh. but like. We'll take, for instance, in Baltimore, Mm -hmm. one of the officers charged in Freddie Gray's murder grew up like three blocks away from Freddie Gray. Mm. Uh, There's no evidence to support that officers actually will be better if they live in the neighborhood. It has, like, you have a tax base argument, Mm -hmm. you have an omnipresence argument Mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, just the cars being around as long as they have take-home cars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Sure, you, you have those kind of arguments. But in the big picture, it's fundamentally about integrating because you you take, like, Baltimore and and, uh, eight of the most violent cities in Baltimore are also on the top ten list for hyper-segregated cities. Mm. So just because you live in Baltimore, I could live three blocks away and live in an entirely different world. Mm -hmm. And, And that would... The people that live... In uh, upper rich areas of Baltimore, there are plenty of them that have no empathy or care or concern about what happens mere blocks away from their own house. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right, yeah. Um, now, uh, kind of switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, I used to think, you know, I read uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I believe, had an article about broken windows policing, or it was in one of his books, I don't remember. Uh, but I remember when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, if you, if you get these small things, you know, then the big things will kind of take care of themselves. And if you just make sure that things look all right and just, you know, police smaller things, then then, then big things will fall into line. Uh, I felt like that kind of thinking allowed people to go along with a lot of these things like stop and frisk um, and that kind of thing. Now, now, what is your policy or your feelings about broken windows policing and, and how, how much of that did you engage in when you were, how much of your day would you say was taken up when you were a police officer with that kind of thing? Okay, so to start from the beginning, broken windows, we always have to be careful because Broken windows is a social um, philosophy mm-hmm. on on doing things literally like broken windows, curbside cleanup, and what law enforcement again because they have an ideology, they don't have a science. They twisted that thinking about social norms of buildings and property to say that that would that what was true of people's treatment of property would correlate to their treatment of the law. And there was no reason to believe that. Hmm. So what you ended up doing was just imprisoning people because those violations nearly everyone does. Hmm. And they're not enforced in areas where there's no police. Hmm. So you automatically set up a system that's going to be biased towards which er- whichever areas are more heavily policed. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And I just feel like with the Eric Garner thing as a perfect example, you know, that's a perfect, like, they were trying to stop him from selling loose cigarettes, I guess, was the offense, and then all of a sudden they're choking him out, and it's like, why would you even be interacting with him other than to enforce this, you know, thing? That you, like you said, it's like this is a heavily policed area, I'm sure, anyway, and there were, like, six officers around when that happened or whatever, but uh, it's like if the police aren't there to enforce th- that, then the, 
you know, it's like they have to be there to enforce this, like, this policy, so. Yeah, and, like, understand this. So, like, for instance, when I was in the Marine Corps, Mm -hmm. I didn't smoke. Mm -hmm. And a lot of guys that didn't smoke, we would fill up our packs with cartons of cigarettes because after we had been in the field a while, that $5 carton of cigarettes, when all the smokers ran out of cigarettes, just got progressively more and more valuable. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So what we were doing as Marines was a much greater violation than what Eric Gardner was doing. Mm-hmm. But not a single soul enforces that crime. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So what you then have there is you don't enforce, you're not, you're not actually enforcing the law, you're enforcing against the people. Because if you are enforcing the law, then wherever that law was violated would be enforced. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely know that that is simply not the case. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's interesting, yeah. Um, Do you think that also correlates at all with, I mean, this is something we also saw in the response to Ferguson was the just militarization. I think a lot of people were just, you know, completely shocked to see the, you know, uh, I don't know if they were Bearcats or MRAPs or what, but in in Ferguson that the police officers had. But do you think the militarization of the police and and seeing people as maybe an enemy as opposed to to people that you're serving is kind of, also in, in equipment and and thinking you know it's not just one well it's just it's i think it's probably just like the progression of you know ultimate power corrupts ultimately Mm -hmm. you know it's just each chief and each politician is looking to have to be that bigger stronger i mean we see it in a reflection of our nation the republican party is sitting there arguing about who's going to make the the military bigger and stronger Mm -hmm. and it's like the same thing is happening it's like the chiefs are like who's going to police department's going to be bigger and stronger well i have five bear cats and you only have four so you know that's like you guys it's like the mass public thinks that these are professionals Mm-hmm. And a significant portion of them simply are not. They testify to things in front of Congress as narcotics experts that were like articles out of the onion that happened here. <laughs> and it's like these people clearly are not professionals. Mm-hmm. They clearly have no idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But we keep doing the same system over and over. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, you brought up Tamir Rice, and I'm glad you did, because I actually interviewed one of the family uh, attorneys for the the family a while ago for one of my columns. And uh, if you go back and listen to the, the tapes of the 911 call and the dispatcher and then what the officer says after he shoots him, uh, the, the age they think he is just keeps rising and rising. You know, he starts out as a kid, and then the dispatcher says it's a guy, and then by the time he's shooting, the guy's shooting him while the car's still rolling, um, he's like, oh, he's 19 or 20, and it's like, this this kid just keeps getting older as the worst things happen to them. Um, do you think that, uh, I don't even want to say police officers specifically, but do you think maybe white people in general just see black males as being older and therefore justifying whatever they're doing based on the fact, well, he's an adult, you know what I mean? Well, that's empirically proven to be true. They roughly see black males to be about four right. years older than they are. But I think what you're, 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 you're like... Um, when you talk about Tamir Rice and like this fact that he gets keeps getting older and older, what you're what you're truly missing there is that each time he gets older, his possession of that gun 
becomes more and more legal. Yeah, we talked about that too. It's like he should be protected. Like, where are these people? Like, here's my thing. Where's the people? You know, the people that parade around with semi-automatic weapons and they're the open carry people, and it's like I, I need an AK and target or whatever. Where are those people mm-hmm. on Tamir Rice? You know what I mean? Because if he was supposed to be an adult and Ohio is an open carry state, what? Where is the crime here? What is he doing wrong? That that you? What is he doing differently except being black, of course, than what you're doing? Like, it's like why? Why isn't this your cause, celebrity or whatever? Right, so when a union comes out and says that that's okay, Uh the fact that I'm alone in this is pretty shocking. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of people, like the whole LEAP organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which everybody should be joining in because they're definitely expanding more into the movement and getting more justice-based, and I'm a member of them, so that's my little shield for the moment. But, uh, like, there's a – I'm, like, the young one. Like, I'm, like, the – like in there, they're like, "Oh, look, here's our young guy for the future." <laughs> from the like, future. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be alone in this as the young guy. You know, like there should be hordes of us. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, we just, we have videotape of people being gunned down and cops being okay with that. And then we have, like you talked about with Mayor De Blasio, like. I mean, you can go back to my Twitter line. I freaked out about that. That was unbelievable. That was shocking, wasn't Disrespect it? Disrespect the mayor because the mayor was trying to stand up for justice. Yeah. You you say you represent justice. And I was like, it, like I want to go back to those photos. And if I ever get a good chief job somewhere, <laughs> then, then I want to find all those officers <laughs> that refuse to turn around. And I want to make all of them my command staff. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Huh. Interesting. You yeah. know, because there was a lot of them that were like, hell no, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I thought that took a lot of courage, I thought. It did, and they were the exception, weirdly, because that then that legitimately scared me. I don't know if I've ever been more scared of a police force than when I saw that happen. And it was like, well, first they did it in, what was it, the hospital where he went to visit someone. I forget where he was, but they, like, were lining the hallways and just backs to him. Yeah. Oh, so scary. And then he was speaking at a funeral, wasn't he? Um, and they turned. Yeah, he was, his, it was like the public funeral for it, right? Exactly. And he spoke yeah. at the public funeral, and and they turned it. I couldn't believe it. It was amazing to me. Like it's like, are are these people not supposed to do what what they're like? Like, are they just allowed to do this? Like, decide is this like well, a coup? I, I mean, they're also disrespecting their dead brother. Thank you. Exactly. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah forget what he's talking politics. about. <laughs> I mean, God. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. Yeah, it's it was it was true. Really shocking, but um, so I uh, I did go and read your. Um, I haven't read the whole thing yet because it's it's thirty pages, and I do want to take the time to, to explore it fully. But kind of explain what you're trying to do with the Chicago Police Department and, and the superintendent position and, and the and the stuff you put out there about that. Um. Well, so yeah, I submitted my application for Chicago Police Department superintendent. Uh, I tried to lay out as many of the principles as they they had eight essay questions, and you had to answer them in three pages, which was super hard to be that concise when you're talking about kind of complicated and nuanced things. Um, and the, so the questions there are the focus in that because that's what they dictated the focus would be. Okay. Um, to me, my ultimate focus is that 
the people have to control the direction of policing at its fundamental core. And police cannot investigate themselves. We have to have some checks and balances. And, and it's not rocket science. It's not a hard argument to make. If anybody would love to debate me on that subject, let's take it on because this is this is a simple argument. Every everything points to this. We, we, we investigated that, ourselves and we found no wrongdoing. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a it's, it's of course. I mean, it's, it's a logical fallacy on its surface. Right. Exactly. So we know we can't do that. So we have to move into allowing police, the public to guide the direction. So I view it like, ultimately I view it like a, a business um, where, like, I, if I'm superintendent, I would be the CEO and I would have a board. Um, and ideally, to me, that board is dominated by the poorest neighborhoods, so they have the biggest say, um, and that would have to be built in. But so so that board, like, well, I'll run the agency. Like, it's my job to fulfill what we all agree upon and argue about and determine to be the direction that we want to go with our community. You know, it's like it, it seems like fundamentally simple to me and obvious. Mm-hmm. So so that's my primary focus there. I don't think by any means that they're ready to do that yet. Um, I want those ideas out there. I want it has to be, I want it, you know, to a certain level, I want it to be that um, years down the line, when they're still sitting there scratching their heads, I can be able to say, guys, come on, I told you this years ago. Like, right. this is what we have to do. We know this. You're just compounding more and more evidence that that's what we have to do. Right. Um, that's kind of the way I see it. I keep being too early for any of this stuff. I don't think it's like going to be me. Like I just have to kind of maybe like force this discussion more. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I focus on now. I'm still doing my PhD. I'm going to focus on the science. And as long as activism and platforms remain available to continue to push the discussion, then I will, mm-hmm. um, I would certainly be ready, and I have, like, my mind wrapped around how I would handle Chicago, and I think the public would love it. I think it would save Rahm Emanuel's mayorship. I think a lot of great things would happen, but I think I'm just too early still. Yeah, I mean, and Chicago definitely needs all the help it can get right now. So, um, in, uh, in the introduction to your application, this was a line that jumped out at me. Um, this is a quote from you. I see the policing model is irrational. The goal is to stop crime. However, we measure that by how many people are arrested for crimes. This is a model that has no motivation for success as its success would defeat its purpose. Um, I read that and that just blew me away because what it reminded me of was, um, if you, I'm sure you've read 1984, right, by George Orwell. Um, it's just the idea of continuous war. It's like the war isn't meant to be won. There's not supposed to be a peace. And uh, that leads to what I was want to ask you about and you kind of meant, you know, touched on Leap a little bit and I definitely want to talk about that. Uh, mass incarceration, uh, prison and industrial complex and, and the drug war and just kind of lay out for people why those things are so poisonous. Well, when it comes to the drug war itself, like the best philosophy that I can think of for what it actually does is that it gives ultimate power to policing. And because you're looking for the smallest of things, the most ambiguous of things, and something that we know empirically every society and every person does to some extent or another. 
So you criminalized all of society, just like you did during prohibition of alcohol. Like we know how that takes place, and we don't think of alcoholics as criminals now, or not even alcoholics. That's a terrible analogy. People that just have a drink once in a while. Mm-hmm. We don't think of them as criminals anymore because we understand like that's a foolish way to operate uh, when it comes to human beings and drugs. Mm-hmm. So what this ultimate power then does is enables like the worst of our biases and our prejudices to be enacted because there's no check and balance on our power. Right. So that's what I really think it's done. So it's allowed people to take money and it's allowed police departments to stop whoever they want, search whatever they want to get into. And then they also have no motivation to succeed in that because you don't keep going up the chain of command. They actually stop at a certain level. Mm-hmm. That way you keep the money coming in and you feed from civil asset forfeiture and, and you keep this system going where drug dealing per, keeps going on and that's harming society while the police are profiting off of it by civil asset forfeitures. Uh, like, and then there's harm reduction. So you have people ODing in alleys because they don't know what's in their heroin and they're, they can't go to a safe place because we've pushed it underground. There's, mm-hmm. there's like every avenue we go into, like cops are raiding the wrong houses and throwing flashbangs in cribs because they're looking for drugs. It's, it's, it's harmful on every aspect for things that we already know are harmful. But, like, ultimately, baby boomers still think free for madness was a statement of fact. Exactly. And it makes you play piano really crazy. <laughs> that movie. Um, so you mentioned Leap a little bit. Can you just tell people how you got involved with that and kind of what that organization is about and, and what you guys hope to accomplish there? Well, yeah, sadly, I didn't know who Leap was. I'm happy that I do now. Mm-hmm. But after I went on uh, Twitter and kind of had that, um, media attention. Leap reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, we've been hoping that a young cop would come out and, uh, you know, be able to articulate the evils of this drug war and uh, to kind of keep pushing the work into the future. So I was, you know, immediately on board. Uh, once I found out who they were, they, um, a lot of retired cops from this area in, in the Northeast, but from all over the world, it's it's retired majors and commanders, retired officers, uh, public defenders, um, prosecutors, federal agents, a whole, like the whole gamut of law enforcement, of, of people that realize from their own experiences in law enforcement how pointless and, and, and relatively stupid the drug war is and you know they have a coalition where they go around and try to keep that discussion going and, and enact le- legislation to uh, at least start taking steps to end the drug war. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine even when you're on the beat or whatever and you you see the drug war just continuous and you don't you, no matter how many arrests you make it doesn't seem to get any better. I'm sure and that's got to be demoralizing from just a morale standpoint. It's like we're doing all this, you know, we can take down these drug dealers. I think I heard you say on the Joe Rogan podcast, it's like we take down this one crack house and there's another one that opens across the street next week and it's like it's not that we're arresting the, the people and then the problems. Not next on. week. Oh, sorry, it's sooner than it's that. It's the okay. next day. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, a week a week is a long time to go, I guess, without a crack house. But um, yeah, exactly. It's 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 quicker than that. But yeah, it's just got to be demoralizing, and then it takes away your you know. There's an opportunity cost there. It's like you don't get to focus on violent crime if you're focused on these uh, you know these drug crimes or whatever, and and these things that aren't aren't harming people except for the people that are using them. So it's like you you could be investigating other you know, and and I don't know what the solve rate for homicides is in, in certain areas, but I can't imagine it's great because the resources are all going to these other things that they shouldn't be focusing on as much. Well, those resources are actively harming the community relations yeah. and thus the cooperation which helps with the investigation. That's yeah. why I'm saying it's all it's all like common sense. I mean, really, from a logical perspective, yes, we need, like, look, I was an adrenaline cop. I get that. I was a guy that kicked indoors. You need guys like that. But you need guys like that to do things like that. And that's it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you do, you don't uh, make the whole department this stat-seeking thing. Patrol officers aren't there to kick in doors for everyday citizens for CDS violations, you know, mm-hmm. not sorry, controlled dangerous substance, uh, drug violations. You know, SWAT teams are for high-risk situ- situations where they got to go in with the use of force that's unquestioned. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what they're for. And, and we're, we're okay with that. I, I don't want to, like, chase away the adrenaline seekers. I need you guys to do certain things. But we need to separate our roles so that we all help each other achieve those goals. Like the patrol officers and the drug units are actively making it harder for homicide detectives to solve cases. We know that empirically as since the drug war, the homicide clearance rate has dropped around the country. Mm-hmm. Despite all those forensic advantages. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, now, you mentioned Trump a little bit before in the protests, uh, and we're, we're speaking, <laughs> shouldn't have. what did you think when you saw that protest or whatever in, in Chicago this weekend here? Well, the worst one that I saw was Kansas City when it came to the pepper spray. Okay, that, that but, might be what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, okay. for the most part, I thought Chicago Police Department handled the situation well. Okay. Um they didn't cancel the the thing. They said they were they were good. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess Trump did lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I believe them on that. They were fine because okay. those protesters aren't the problem. Right. Um, I remain uh, perpetually uh, shocked that things are not worse. I mean, I know that always sounds like <laughs> such a bad thing to say, but um, <sighs> like I'm sorry if this stuff was happening. To white kids, uh-huh. we know this. This would this would not be this docile. Um, the idea that the black community uh, is painted as as thuggish when the atrocities committed against them is, is staggering, and that they still go to peacefully protest and get attacked, and are still pushed in the media as the bad guys is is. I don't know. Another one of those things where it's like I don't. I can't believe we're actually making these arguments. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that guy, that Trump protester, that just randomly punched that black guy. <laughs> you know, it was like maybe he was ISIS or something. <laughs> like, yeah, just punch people in case they're ISIS. Just, just in case. You know, <laughs> like, we're going to be okay with that, I guess. Apparently, and then Trump will apparently offer to pay for your legal um, fees or something. Um, well, as long as we're talking about the election, what candidate do you see as giving voters the best chance for real police reform, or or do you think this is maybe a bigger problem that a single president can handle? Do you think this is a decades-long thing that we need to change on a more fundamental level? 
No, I think these things are incredibly easy to change. Hmm. Um, it's just a matter of having the courage to do it. So I, I think without a doubt, and then if we're talking about our courage, uh, then we're only going to be talking about Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. um, as having the best chance to do that. I don't think Bernie is, uh, you know, he's obviously not fully, he's, well, no one's ever fully woke, but he's not, he still needs to do some work to understand uh, white privilege and, and the black community and stuff. But his heart's in the right place, and we all know that. And he seriously means the reform effort. So I think by far he's the best option. I would love a federal position. That would be like my dream is like a federal reform czar mm-hmm. to, to start implementing things. But at its foundation, uh, like management principles 101 uh, are what gets measured is what gets done. And you get what you inspect, not what you expect. Hmm. And that's fundamentally in policing. We have a system set up that if using those principles would lead to the results that we have now. Mm-hmm. So we just simply start measuring things that we actually want police officers to do. Because when you measure them and you judge them simply by arrest and citation, don't get surprised when they go and issue arrest and citations. Mm-hmm. So, so we, right. if we just change the metrics and the performance measurements and stop doing the things that we know are wrong, so we can argue about which things to do. Mm-hmm. But we know without a without a question of a doubt, like broken windows, policing uh, is it, harmful to communities in the end. Mass incarceration is harmful, like locking everybody up for drug violations is harmful. We know these things have a detrimental effect on communities. Yeah. So just stop doing, just stop being the bad guys, and then we right. can start moving forward. But if we start to stop being the bad guys, that will be one big leap. Mm-hmm. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Okay, stop doing that. <laughs> Just stop that. Right, exactly. They all, they all think that, you know, uh, you know the, the, the cops get up and they say, Oh, it's not all cops, you know, that guy is just an anomaly. Well, then, then, okay, don't yell at me about that. Go stop that dude that's an anomaly then. <laughs> you know, it's like... Yeah. Exactly. Well, I feel, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, I, I don't know how you feel about Edward Snowden, but I do I do th- kind of think of you guys in the same uh, breath as far as whistleblowers, people that were on the inside and kind of let us all in on what's actually happening. Uh, I feel like any time spent persecuting people that are, you know, whistleblowers that speak up is time that you could be spending talking about what they have brought up. Like, if you're telling me how bad, it, it's the same old trick. It's like, anytime I hear somebody attack the per- the messenger instead of the message, I just go back to why aren't you focusing on these things they revealed as opposed to trying to attack the character of the person who revealed them. Like, I, that never washes with me. I never find any sympathy for that argument. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, that's clearly what they do. Uh, um, I, I would, I very much, please, please, if you can find someone that would like to argue the substance uh, of my argument, that, that would be wonderful. I'm dying to have somebody <laughs> argue the substance of it instead of throwing out random insults. Yeah, right, right. Well, I'm totally on on your side, so I'm sorry I can't be that person. <laughs> I know that's the only people that ever talk to me. But uh, I know that D. Ray McKesson, who I think you've you've connected with in the past, right? Am I correct about that? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're acquainted. 
Right. Uh, he is running for mayor of Baltimore. Um, you, of course, are, mentioned you were trying to become the CPD superintendent. Um, I feel like maybe you guys are on the vanguard of this, of people that are, you know, uh, people that are concerned with civil rights, people that are out in the public, leaders, protesters, that kind of thing, moving into the system, trying to change it from the inside. Do you see yourself as part of that generation of, of people, you know, frankly, around our age that, that are kind of trying to move into the system and change it from the inside like that? I would certainly hope so, but I'm just fundamentally the I, the, the the problem is is like I have uh, okay I'm 36 years old and it always gets bad like you don't want to you trump yourself up well then you know if you don't talk good about you who's going to but anyway I, I have a well qualified resume for what we're talking about like I, I challenge the world to find a 36 year old with a better resume to talk about what we're, we need to transform in policing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm here. I have truly embraced my role in it and like gotten into the front lines of Black Lives Matter and and understand uh, the issues and and focused on understanding the communities even more. Like and that's what they want. So, but the thing is, is is the community just has to push far enough for someone like me. I simply can't make it happen. And really, neither can D-Ray. It's not, like, I feel like we're just people that have made ourselves available. And I think we've made ourselves available to get the discussion started because we're two people that are still way too early and it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, like, it's just got to, uh, it's, it's it's not us. You know, like, when you're civil servants and you're like, hey, I'm here and I have the platform that says we're going to do exactly what you say we want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to do that. And then they don't put us into those positions. There's just nothing we can do about that. Well, right. I mean, like you've kind of mentioned, the baby boomer generation is still in charge of the reins of power in a lot of places, and they are not trying to give that up just yet to, uh, you know, younger people that are coming up behind them, you know. So I think I feel like it's maybe just a generational thing, don't you? I mean, it could be, but like for Chicago, for instance, mm-hmm. um, I would only I would only be the youngest commissioner by months. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a commissioner like in the fifties and sixties that was thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you know he was thirty-seven and they did it then. <laughs> um, right. So I don't I don't know that that's the case. Um, I think there's a lot of things that seem to be. On the surface, it would be, like, logical, but everything that involves human beings seems to be so complicated and so nuanced. All we can ever do mm-hmm. is just, like, broadly generalize. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So I just don't know where it has to go. So <laughs> I sit here until that day. I'm going to continue to do my thing, mm-hmm. and if the time comes and the general... Uh, populace has changed and wants to embrace those ideas, then I'll step up. Until then, I'll continue to work on the science. That's all I can do. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think you're going to be proven right, and I just feel that in my bones that you're the way you're looking at this it has to be the way it goes. I don't see another option. And it's just, it just I, feel, I, send, I share your frustration in that because it's like I can see down the road this is what needs to happen, and it's really just a matter of time until people accept that that's the truth. And it's not that you're... Ba- like, 
like you've mentioned the word empirical several times, which I think is important. You're not doing this because you feel like it's true. There is evidence to back up what you're saying, right? That's why I open to the debate. You know, like, I mean, I, a lot of people want to say because I talk empathy that, like, that's the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. It could very well just be that the education and diving into the research and literature that I've been doing for the last seven years has, you know, the the facts support an empathetic approach. So, you know, it could just be a scholarly approach, you know. I mean, I think, the, the like, the evidence supports this as well. Even, like, it feels humanly right, and that's good, and it feels moral, and mm-hmm. that's good, but... Like, I can approach this strictly from a data perspective Mm -hmm. and come to these same conclusions. So if we're coming to conclusions that feel moral, why would we resist that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally, totally agree. Um, Now, you've been so generous with your time. We're almost at an hour, so I don't, I mean, I'd love to talk to you for as long as you can talk, but... um, We can always do another one. i got to set up for an interview in 30 minutes, actually. No problem. Well, I'll just ask you uh, uh, two more questions here, because I did see Mm -hmm. on your uh, website that you have actually written some books. I believe you kind of mentioned that a little bit, and and there's an, is there a novel called Elliot? Is that correct? Uh, That was... um, so let's just call that a hobby, where I did, I did a, uh, a fiction uh, story about uh, a cop, uh, like a killer cop. It was just a, uh, a hobby. I do not fancy myself a writer. Oh, no, I, I love this moment in your uh, – I went on the Amazon review of it, and here's, here's the, the phrase I loved. Elliot was written by an actively serving Baltimore Police Department officer. It doesn't get any more real than that. I was like, oh, man, I'm in. Like, what is this? Like, now, were you were, – were, when? okay, so you're on the job. You're writing this. Were you, like, in your police car scribbling things, or where? Did, where how did you write this on the job? What was your process there? Oh, no, by, I was a supervisor by then. Okay. So I was able to, like, stand back and kind of see things from a bigger perspective. Okay. So when it's realistic in there, it's realistic in, like, how everything functions and how everybody talks. Okay. But it's, um, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. I have no idea why I wrote that. <laughs> no, no, it's cool, man. I loved it. I, I Actually, that got me pumped to read it. I was, like, on the fence, and I was like, oh, what? <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, for sure. I don't know. It's like I kind of, I think when I was, like, patrolling the Eastern District, like, you just ride around these neighborhoods constantly, constantly, constantly. Uh-huh. And I think sometimes maybe, like, you're bored. You just get, like, narratives in your head. Oh, and, yeah, exactly. And, I've, I've never done more creative writing than when I was in jobs, when I that was my escape to the thing I was doing at the moment. You know what I mean? So, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I did check that out. Maybe I'll read that one day. But um, So I love music, and then this is the fourth episode of my podcast that you'll be on, and we've managed to talk about it a little bit every time, and, and I definitely uh, want to do that a little bit right now. Now, now I know from following you on Twitter that you are a fan of Rage Against the Machine, um, and I am also a huge fan. Uh, I played guitar in my uh, high school garage band. Uh, we played uh, Testify, Grill Radio. Um, one time we got shut down by the cops for a noise complaint. We were writing the last chorus of Killing in the Name, and we were like, "Yeah." Um, so, um, <laughs> one thing I found interesting with them was that they broke up right as the Bush administration took power, and I was like, "Hey, you." Guys guys thought you were mad before you're gonna hate this like where are you going like we need you right now so that was one thing um that i thought was was hilarious with them and then another thing was uh, paul ryan i don't know if you remember this from when he was you know running with mitt romney or whatever it came
came out that he likes to do his P90X with uh, Rage Against the Machine on, which is just the biggest paradox uh, that you could imagine. And then Tom Morello comes out and says how much he hates his political ideology. So that was funny to me. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I don't, I know you may have listened to this a little bit, but Zach De La Roca did do a little guest spot on uh, the Run the Jewels 2 album. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about Rage in general or, or just that wasn't really a question. Just, you know, just throwing, throwing to you. I certainly hope they come back uh-huh. at some point in time. Uh-huh. Um, it's funny you talk about music and the guitar playing because that's been the big thing that this movement took away from me. Uh-huh. Is uh, when I retired, I just determined I was finally going to learn to play guitar. Uh-huh. So uh, for that year or so uh, after I retired, I was finally like getting the hang of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, playing, being able to play, you know, pick up any sheet music for a decent song and be able to play it in, you know, 15 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, then all this happened, and I've, my schedule has been such a mess that I haven't even been able to play anymore. So this damn thing actually took it away from me. Ugh. Okay. Um, but, like, I kind of feel it, it was it had been the ultimate irony or paradox for everyone to go at that with me because I like, grew up on Rage. Mm-hmm. And then I became the machine. <laughs> Spent my whole year as the machine uh-huh. and my whole career, uh-huh. you know, right from the military to the police department. Sure. And uh, then, like when I got out, I felt like I was getting back to like my actual uh-huh. who I was, like growing up. Yeah. Um, and you know, and had the the stories of Leonard Peltier in my mind, uh-huh. uh, and like kind of coming back to those roots when it comes to rage, but. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I hope they come back. Uh, they're by far not my favorite band. Who's I your, guess probably Dracula Roco would be more. Uh, with, without question, like to me, bottom line, it was just the individual would be Jack White. Mm. Um, I love Jack White. Like if there was a guitar player, I, I would want to play like it would be Jack. Oh yeah. Um, so he's always been, uh, you know, since he came out, he's been one of my favorites. But I'm like a uh, a tool. My my whole arm, right arm is, is all corn album covers. No way. Um, really? <laughs> That's awesome. Because, yeah, well, because it, remember, remember, this is like CD days and stuff, uh-huh. right? Sure. So to me, tattooing has always been about marking a period mm-hmm. in, in time. So even if people think that would be a stupid tattoo in the future, well, that, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um like it's about marking that that time, right? Like you wouldn't so, probably get your whole arm and corn tattoos today, probably. Right. I assume. Well, what? It, yeah. So what it is is, I remember uh-huh. going to the CD stores because you used to have to go buy your music. Yeah. So like I mean, when I think of the album cover, like I can remember because I didn't even know what it would be half the time. Mm-hmm. So I just knew a release date, you know, because you see it in the paper, you hear it on the radio. It's like you were looking at it on your smartphone. <laughs> right. So I distinctly remember, like, going into those CD stores and, like, going through the shelves and, like, you know, listening to it real quick and then putting it in the car and unwrapping the cellophane. <laughs> so, so like, to me, each of those albums has uh-huh. nothing to do with Corn as a band. Right. But every, you know, it, it's just that I consistently like them, so uh-huh. I always... You know, remember buying those albums and where I was at that period in life. Oh, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, now, just to kind of wrap up here, you know, um, so what can we do to, to help, you know, people that have heard your message and, and want to help you out and kind of usher in this reform? What can we as civilians do, you know, with, in, in general or when we deal with police? Or how can we, what can we do on our end? 
I think support and provide platform for your local activists. I think that's the most important thing. And so if it comes to people that like me, then it's just get the discussion out there, get other people to listen and kind of spread it because that's really what it is. It's this idea. It has nothing to do with me. It's just to get people to have this talk. Mm-hmm. Because once you have this talk, you'll start to see it the other way and understand the importance of pushing for this to finally happen. Definitely, definitely. Now, this, yeah, this will be out in, in two two weeks or so. Um, is there anything you want to promote or, or direct people towards uh, as far as you or anything you're involved with here? Uh, there's always Leap. So that's uh, leap.cc. And they have members, and they have a good uh, thing you can sign up for. And I have, uh, I'm speakers, and they have other speakers, so you can, like, get us to go out to a college or someplace like that and set up speaking events that we come out and do. And uh, I don't even stick strictly to the drug topic. If people want me to come out and just talk about race relations and policing, then I go out and talk about that. Most people don't even want to talk about the drug war with me. But if they've gotten to me, then, you know, usually they thoroughly understand already that the drug war is bad. Yeah. So (laughs) it's just getting – it's really ultimately just getting people – to, to listen so we can push the change, whatever it is. I don't care what your lane is. Um, help some kids in, in your neighborhood if you want. If you can help write resumes, go help resumes. If you have some money and you can support some mm-hmm. local activists or you can, you know, media people and mm-hmm. to provide a platform, it, it's all, uh, those are the, probably the, the easiest to understand things to give back and to help the movement. Definitely. And I think one thing we should emphasize before we go that is that this is not anti-police in any way. I, I don't feel feel like I am anti-police and I'm, I'm sure you obviously don't either um, but I think a people a take it take these kind of criticisms that way and I think what we want ultimately is better policing we don't want no policing am, am I right on that well it's we're not anti-police we're anti-police brutality right exactly and I would wonder why you're not mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly why is this the outlier we're not anti-police. it's anti-police brutality yeah and it's, it's not just black lives matter it's Black Lives Matter 2. And if you can't say that Black Lives Matter 2, I don't know what's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, it's, it's about just, just uh, understanding the, the, what's really being said. I mean, none of us are saying we, we don't want cops. None of us are saying all cops are, are bad. It's systematically the structure of the system incentivizes policing to be brutal and to be poor and to be disproportionately enforcing and to largely do more harm than help. So if we stop having systems that do that, then our officers can do what they want to do, which is be good cops. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Well, I have to say it's been an honor speaking with you. I, I really appreciate what you do. I want you to keep doing it, and I'd love for you to come back sometime. Uh, we can talk about, uh, we, if you want, we'll talk about White Stripes for an hour, because I could do that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I, I would. I, like, that's one of my things, dreams, is just like go up to Detroit and walk all those streets that he did, but I'm sure they're all destroyed and, oh. and, and abandoned and run down. Like, <laughs> that that could get it pretty so. sad pretty quickly. <laughs> But, right, I yeah, imagine. For sure. Well, it was great talking. I went down to Third Man Records and all, man. I got the Oh, you the, did. We recorded we recorded the song in the in the recording booth oh. and Third Man Records and oh. and all that stuff. So we could talk about that later. Oh, that's dope. Well, uh, great talking <laughs> to you with you, Michael. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> right. Thanks, Rob, man. That's all your listeners to just tune in, help as much as they can and uh, follow up. Nothing's off off limits. So if they want to ask a follow-up question, I'm cool with anything. Cool. Well, you're you're great. I appreciate what you're doing. Man, you have a great day.
Alright, make both of things.